I don't know if I've told any of you this before, but when Jen and I were first married, my mum used to check in with her. Uh, I, I think this happened multiple times. Mum wanted to see if I was caring for Jen. Uh, she wanted to see if I was being a good husband. Uh, this is the kind of mother-in-law that you want, Jen would say. Not, not so concerned about how she's going at being a wife for her dear son, but is that boy I raised looking after you? Uh, maybe mum was a little concerned about my maturity. Uh, is this bloke cut out to be a husband? Uh, it turns out uh, I was thinking the same way. There are certain occasions in life, aren't there, where we pause, at least hopefully this really does happen, where we pause and think, it's time to grow up. Uh, becoming a teenager, I'm not a kid anymore, the teen says to mum or, or dad, uh, we'll stop behaving like one, mum or dad uh, thinks to themselves, you'd never say that, would you? Uh, growing up, leaving home. Uh, standing on your own two feet, getting your first job for some, getting married for some, having kids, turning 40, that's me next year. Uh, 40, it's time to grow up. Uh, next year. Uh, or 80, it's, to it's time to grow up. Uh, we're meant to be growing up, aren't we? It's the reality in absolutely every area of life and it does not look good nor is it good for us when it isn't happening. Uh, well, we're looking at uh, Hebrews again and this passage chapter 5 verse 11 all the way through to chapter 6 verse 20 it is profoundly challenging. Our author or our preacher remember this is a sermon-like letter He's been uh, talking about the office of high priest as established by the Lord in the Old Testament and how it's fulfilled in, in Jesus. And, and he begins to talk about that Melchizedek uh, in verse 10. But when we get to verse 11, what we read, we have much to say about this, Jesus, high priest, Melchizedek, uh, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. Uh, sometimes we blame the teacher in the classroom. I remember complaining about a teacher uh, once. Uh, this teacher would turn up late, and so the class would uh, run overtime. They, they didn't seem to be well prepared, at least from my point of view. And the person that I was complaining to, they, they listened, and then they said, but are you a good student? A good student can learn from almost any teacher. I wonder if what we have in Hebrews here is a bit like this. Remember, this is a letter, but a sermon-like letter. And so you imagine the author speaking and there's people gathered around, but the speaker, our author, he can see that the people are not tuned in. In fact, they just don't care. The Bible is open. They can even recite that great memory verse from uh, chapter 4, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged uh, sword, that God's word, it, it penetrates even dividing soul and spirit and judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. God speaks, they know it, but they're barely present. 
Hence our writer says, down in chapter 6, verse 12, uh, which I reckon is our key verse, we don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through, through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. And so in our passage this afternoon, we, we have a pause from the high priestly Melchizedek stuff with a strong warning followed by an encouragement. And sometimes we really do need a stern word, don't we? This afternoon we have it. Uh, those of you who have been around or you know Hebrews, you'll recall that the original reader, they were a people who had been at the Christian faith uh, for some time. When did you come to faith? Oh, it was some time back. And we know from chapter 10, if you flip over there, but back in the early days as believers, they'd really contended for the faith. They'd even been publicly exposed to insult and persecution due to their trust in Jesus. They'd even willingly had their possessions confiscated because of their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But now, as our author addresses them, they're hardly even tuned in. And it's not that they need spoon feeding like some babies do, but milk is the order of the day. You see chapter 5, verse 12? In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. That's embarrassing, isn't it? They've been at the Christian life for some time. You should be teachers. But something is amiss. They're clinging to the bottle. You should be teachers is, of course, not to say that everyone should go into full-time vocational Christian service. But the role of every believer growing to maturity, we're to be teaching others with our words, with our actions. Do you think this way? I learn for me because I need to learn. But I'm also learning that I might pass everything I know onto others. And so the prayer, Heavenly Father, teach me so that I can learn for myself. I need it. And so that I can teach others. See, we have these people who should be passing the message of Jesus on. Who should be building others up in the faith. But instead they're an absolute liability. Can I just ask you to reflect? Uh, Where are you at with this? getting stuck into knowing and growing in Christ, inviting others to do the same, or sucking on the baby bottle. See verse 13 and 14, let me read there. We read, anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Just as the baby begins on the milk, so does the Christian, that is the elementary truths of God's 
uh, word, uh, repentance. You turn away from doing your own thing and, and you turn to God. You, you trust and obey Jesus. God, forgive me through the sacrificial death of your son and help me now to live for you. I'm indwelt by the Spirit, living for him and waiting for Jesus' return. As we put our salvation into practice, as we walk in this grand salvation that we have in Christ, we grow in spiritual discernment. In chapter 6, verse 1 to 3, this is what our author is on about. And notice he places himself in there with the people. We read verse 1, Therefore let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. That seems reference to their Christian, how their Christian instruction began. Repent and believe. Verse 2, instruction about cleansing rites and the laying on of hands, that seems reference to joining the Christian community, possibly baptism. Uh, verse 2 again, the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. That, that's the future to come, isn't it? There's a resurrection and Jesus will return to judge. Now, our, our author is not saying that we ever move beyond the gospel as though we park the gospel over here. No, but that we crack on with it, together growing up in Christ. And verse 3 is wonderful, isn't it? Do you see that? And God permitting, we will do so. There's some resolve, I reckon, in those words. Sounds a little bit like Paul in Philippians, that we work out our salvation with, with fear and trembling as God is at work in us. Some of, some of you are familiar with the series, uh, you know, Narnia, C.S. Lewis, uh, it is really worth checking out uh, if you haven't already and, and reading it um, with your kids as well if you have them. The, the line, the witch in the wardrobe is the best known in the series. And, and it's this, the, the series is the story of four children who enter this world, Narnia. Uh, and Lewis uses it to help us understand something of the Christian faith. In the book, The Last Battle, and a scene which really represents heaven, uh, Susan, one of the four, she's missing. Where's Susan? The oldest brother, Peter, answers, my sister Susan is no longer a friend of Narnia. Uh, Yes, says Eustace, the, the cousin, and whenever you try to get her to come and talk about Narnia or do anything about Narnia, she, she says, what wonderful memories you have. Fancy you still thinking about all those funny games we used to play when we were children. In verses eight, uh, 4 through 8, we have some really challenging words, don't we? You noticed as they were read, I, I suspect. Just look with me at verses 4 to 6. We read, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, 
who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Uh, It'll come as no surprise that this is a really tricky part of the Bible to understand. But it's also such a strong warning that we shouldn't just dismiss it. Can I give you three possible views? Uh, And there's many nuances and things. But one being that our author is describing Christians who began as sincere followers of Jesus but have since fallen away. Uh, This then would form a heavy warning that there's a possibility of us losing our faith, losing our salvation. Uh, That view uh, is difficult to reconcile with other parts of the Bible where we're assured, believers are assured, that we cannot be lost, like John 10. Another view, acknowledging that believers cannot lose their salvation, it's possible for people to to have some outward signs of being Christian when, when in fact they're not. Someone, for example, might be a part of a local church in some way or, or another, the, the Christian community, and assume that they're a believer, even dipping the toe in a little, but never really surrendering their lives to Christ. And at times that's a reality, isn't it? A bit of so-called Christian service does not make you a believer. And can I say, if you're not sure, if this passage really shakes you up, I'd really love to hear from you. A third viewer, again, recognising that believers cannot lose their salvation, uh, this is a solemn warning, but like a sign that's banged into the ground beside a cliff. Warning. You see the sign and you won't go near the cliff. God uses severe warnings like these to keep his people from falling away. He gives them because we need them. The drift is serious. Laziness in relation to the God of the Bible is dangerous. And so we should search our hearts. I've been reading uh, Proverbs uh, with some blokes lately, and and I've really been challenged by Proverbs 4, verse 23, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. The Bible is a pastoral book, isn't it? And sometimes we need a stern word. If we don't yet get the weight of what is being said, in verse 7 and 8, our our author rams home the point with an illustration. Verse 7 and 8, land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. 
but land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed, in the end it'll be burned. And you think about how you're responding to God's word, yeah? The parable of the sower. You see the natural and the necessary response to God's life-giving word is growth towards maturity. I don't think here we have an argument against perseverance of the saints. But I think what we have here is a stirring up of the saints. That is a call to get our gear together. One of those life moments. It's time to grow up. Whether a teen or approaching 40 or 80, it's time to grow up. I want you to notice that in verse 9 there's a change of tone. This is the only place in Hebrews where our author calls those he addresses dear friends. Verse 9 we read, even though we speak like this dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. You notice in verse 10 that our author observes something of the fruit of the gospel in the lives of the people. The love that they have shown uh, for God as they help and continue to help his people. An evidence of relationship with God is a love and care for God's people. And in verse 11, our author urges his listener to keep on at it. It's a bit like a couple of weeks ago, if you were here today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. The Christian life is to be lived day by day. We don't park the gospel over here. In our lives, some place back many years ago. When was the last time you changed in response to God's word? When was the last time you changed in response to God's word? Anyway, that's the stern word. Uh, Practicing faith in Jesus. It's not just reciting the creed or singing it as we do on a Sunday afternoon, but growth to maturity. And it'd be right for us to pause and reflect on how we're going. Uh, to finish, though, we have a great encouragement. We read chapter 6, verse 12. We do not want you to be lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. And in chapter 6, verse 13 to 20, our author points us to that bloke Abraham, the father of faith, and we're going to sing about uh, that to finish in a little while. Uh, faith and patience. Uh, you know God made those promises to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. I'll bless you, I'll, I'll, I'll give you, you know, many descendants, uh, I'll, I'll bless all people through you, Genesis 12. But, but Abraham was old, so was his wife, they were beyond uh, childbearing years. 
But God was still faithful to that promise. Miraculously, along came Isaac. But then some 25 years after that promise uh, was given in Genesis 12, we get to Genesis chapter 22, where Isaac, the child of the promise, his life was to be taken. Abraham was tested and, and, and Isaac was to be sacrificed. But God provided a way out and he kept his promise. See, the, the author points the reader back. The Lord doesn't change. He makes promises, he keeps them. In fact, when, when we want to be really clear that we'll come good on our word... Uh, I, I don't know if you do this, it happens in the playground, but we, we can swear by something greater than us, can't we? And we have the history of going to court and, and swearing on the Bible. But there's no one, uh, nothing greater than the Lord. So what does he do when he wants to make it really clear that he is sincere? Well, he makes an oath. He swears on himself. And so there's the promise and there's the oath. Verse 18, we read, God did this so that by two unchangeable things, the promise and the oath, two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. It's a long way of saying God makes promises and God keeps them. And we can have great confidence in the hope that we have in Jesus. There's no way God will fail. There's no way God will fail in taking his people to heaven. He will keep his promise. So we hang in there and we keep on looking to him. You see chapter 6 verse 19 and 20 though. And we're going to finish here. Uh, we, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You see what our author, our preacher is doing? Uh, having just given us the stern word, listen up. Cut out the laziness. He's taking us back to the high priest stuff. And we'll get to Melchizedek next week. Hope in the Bible has a particular meaning. It's not a subjective attitude. Uh, it's not a vague feeling. Hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking. I hope that tomorrow will be uh, a sunny day. No, hope in the Bible is rock-solid, objective reality. Uh, in the ancient world, apparently their anchors were different to what we have today. Many of you already know this. But I, I picture an anchor and it's a, you know, a, a metal thing thrown out the side of a tinny and bigger ones for bigger boats. But in the ancient harbour, there would be a great big stone, secure, and immovable at the harbour's edge. And when the, the ship couldn't 
get to the harbour because the, the, the winds were too high. One of the crew would go ahead in a boat as a forerunner, a little rowing boat. And they'd attach a line from the struggling ship to the anchor, which was, the anchor which was sure and steadfast, immovable. And from there, the ship would just have to hang on to the rope, hold fast, and be drawn back into safety. And you see here, our hope through the gospel is that sure, steadfast, that sure, steadfast anchor. Our harbour is heaven. And where has the anchor gone? Did you notice? Where's the anchor gone? Behind the veil. The veil, our author's picking up on temple language. The inner sanctuary behind the curtain where the high priest would go once a year. The holy of holies into the presence of God himself. Although with Jesus, it's not just that Jewish temple, is it? And all we have to do Hold fast to him. Maturity matters, says our author. Maturity matters. Laziness. It's shocking. Today, consider this stern warning to be for you. It's time to grow up, isn't it? How about we pray? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your living and active word. And we pray, Lord, that that wouldn't just be a memory verse to us, but that as you penetrate, that as you judge our thoughts and actions, that you would soften us and enable us to walk in obedience. Uh, Lord, this afternoon, we're, we're sorry uh, for our laziness, uh, for being flippant in our relationship with you, perhaps. And Lord, we pray that you would help us together be growing up. Uh, Lord, we thank you so much that even as we have such a stern warning, we also have a great reminder that you are a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. We thank you for the way we see that in history. Uh, and Lord, we thank you too that we have in Jesus a high priest who has entered your presence, a forerunner who's gone ahead of us, a solid hope that we might go with him. And Lord, we thank you for these wonderful truths and we pray that you would help us change according to your word for your glory in the power of your spirit. Lord, thanks for feeding us by your word and we thank you for the pizza in a little while and we pray even now you would be with us as we sing in response. For we pray these things in the name of mighty Jesus. Amen.